The following message is from the 2012 IBCD Summer Institute, Changed by Grace. My name is Ernie, and I have the privilege of serving the Lord at the Master's College, and I've been there for seven years, and I get to teach in our undergraduate biblical counseling program and our graduate biblical counseling program. Uh, We have a Master of Arts in Biblical Counseling. And it's in uh, two different formats. You can do it in a resident program, or you can come during the summer and do it in a module format. And it's wonderful to see some of our summer, we call it the SIP program, but it's more like GALP since you're there for a few weeks. But uh, it stands for Summer Intensive Program, and uh, they're already doing their homework for this July right now. And then they'll come for classes and then do homework until October, so you get all the same material that you would in a traditional semester, um, all in a module-type format. And anyway, it works really well. Uh, Before going to master's, and this will fit right in with the presentation, I was a pastor for 25 years, and most of those years were in Virginia. And so if you've ever wondered what an East Coast person looks like, here I am. I'm I'm a total transplant to the West Coast. Grew up in the East Coast, pastored on the East Coast. Uh, We were three blocks from the Virginia Tech campus. That's where I did ministry for years and years, and that was really delightful. About uh, 90% of our church family were faculty, staff, or students from Virginia Tech, and that added a a really interesting dynamic to the ministry there. But one of the issues that I had to wrestle with when I first went there was, where are my future leaders? And I had a wrong mentality about who the men as elders were going to be or who were going to be the care group leaders, etc. And I used to think of, uh, of that and kind of throw my hands up in despair and say, where are the godly men? Where are my godly leaders? And aren't they just supposed to appear? And after a while, I realized, oh, that's my job as a pastor. I should be developing the future leadership. And we started a very a pretty intensive equipping ministry for small group leaders and elders, uh, board members, etc. So the material you're about to hear is material that first was developed there, and then uh, I've expanded on it through the years with uh, teaching at Masters, and uh, now get to do it at my local church, which is Crown Valley Community Church in Acton, California. I'm sure you've never heard of Acton, California. We're near Vasquez Rocks, if you've heard of Vasquez Rocks. And uh, we have an equipping for ministry program there, which I'll tell you a little bit about. But how about if I pray? And that gives you kind of a sense of where we're headed. Is This is about discipleship and mentoring people for ministry. And so if that's not what you were looking for in a seminar, you still have time to go to another seminar. But that's what this one is about. And it's a delightful topic for me, Um, and I'm going to tell you some stories about how this actually works in real life, and we're going to start off with one of those, but why don't we pray first. Father, it is a privilege to be here with brothers and sisters in Christ that are truly like-minded, that love you, that love the Word of God, they love the local church, and we want to be used to, for your honor and glory, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So, Lord, we dedicate this time to you. May your name be high and lifted up, 
And I pray that many local churches would catch a vision for how you could use their local church to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to start off telling you about Larry, so you can pull out your Larry story here. And I am a professor, so I know how to spell story. Um, That's an acronym, as you'll see down along the side. And this is the way I write up case studies. So that's just kind of an extra for you if you want to learn a way to write up a case study. And I actually do this for data gathering. Uh, People like to tell you their story. So I'll send them the story, the S-T-O-R-E-E, and I'll say, I'm looking forward to meeting with you, and I would love to hear your story even before we meet. And I have them write up just a brief description of what their story is, and uh, then I get some general data before I even meet with them for the first time. But the S stands for the situation, the T stands for their thinking, the O for how are others involved, the R for how are they responding or reacting, E, what emotions are involved in the situation, and what are their expectations, hopes, and wants. So let me tell you about Larry. Larry is a real person and uh, actually working with Larry right now. So Larry's a new believer in your church, and he has a desire to grow in Christ-likeness. The Lord used very difficult circumstances in his life to provoke him to search for answers. He's come to Christ out of a background of alcohol and drugs and a very dysfunctional family. He is divorced and his wife is a drug addict, so he has custody of their 10-year-old son. The family he grew up in was also difficult. He had a father who was a yeller and a mother who was not really tuned into caring for him. Larry does not have a regular job. He's lived with a number of families in the church in the last year. He tries to pay rent but isn't always consistent. He also isn't very energetic about finding a job. Since coming to Christ and being baptized, he has been faithful to church, Bible studies, and has his son in Awana. Until recently, he has started struggling with drinking again after a failed relationship with a woman. His thinking. Larry regularly thinks about himself as a failure. He also dwells on how it seems like no one cares for him and says to himself, I need people to love me. He daydreams about his big check coming. In recent weeks, he has thought, has thought that life's out of control and I, I just need stability. He's also thought that the church isn't doing what it's supposed to do to help him with all his needs. Kind of ironic, huh? He also wonders if God is punishing him since he can't seem to find a stable job and has to move from house to house. How are others involved? He's starting to offend others in the church because of his seeming poor work ethic. They're beginning to wonder if he's just taking advantage of the church. His relationship with the church is getting shaky, especially since he seems to be making accusations against the church. Reactions. Highly emotional outbursts, crying and drinking are the ways he seems to be responding recently. He's also become a bit more inconsistent in church attendance and has at times seemed to want want to leave. Emotions. Panic would be a good way to describe him recently, especially as there's been more financial pressure and pressure from the church to be more diligent in finding a job. He worries regularly about the future and what people are thinking of him. He has a lot of fear that people will reject him, and he yearns for stability and some peace and quiet. Expectations. I just want someone to love me. I need a job, but it has to be one that fits my schedule. I really want a relationship with a woman. I don't want to be pushed. Now, here's my question. We're not, this is not a counseling uh, 
case study for this time together uh, necessarily in that we're going to analyze everything in this case study. But my qu- the reason I wanted to start with this is because here we have a very young, immature, new believer. Can you picture Larry being an elder in the church someday? And my question is, how are we going to get Larry from where he is now to being an elder qualified type person? That's what this seminar is about. This seminar is about how do we take the Larrys of the world and have a vision for developing them and helping them grow in Christ-likeness and mentoring them to be mature followers of Christ. So guess, and I have in your notes uh, Susan's story, but since Larry's on my mind a lot these days, I switched from Susan to Larry uh, to get us started today. So I'm going to skip over that part of the notes. I do have some questions there, though. And just kind of keep Larry in the back of your mind as we go through the material. What would we do with Larry if we were applying this material to him? And I'll try to do that as I go through the seminar. Uh, So some questions there to get us started. Traditionally, what is discipleship? So get in your mind a picture of discipleship. Here's what I picture. I picture maybe two people meeting at Starbucks and... They've got a table between them and a cup of coffee, and they're studying a Nav Press book on the Gospel of John or something like that. Now, that's what I would say and what you're, you should be hearing by the end of this seminar, that obviously that's part of discipleship. But I think for too long we have equated content with maturity. It ought to be obvious to us that it's possible to have a lot of Bible knowledge and not necessarily be a mature follower of Christ. Because we've all heard the horror stories of pastors who are these incredible expositors of Scripture and have knowledge, and then they fall. And there's some type of sexual sin. And we say, well, there's a disconnect between the head and the heart, is the thing that we typically say. Somehow the material that was content wasn't necessarily shaping everything about the character. And what, part of what I'm going to be arguing is that we need a more well-rounded approach to discipleship, that discipleship is not just about getting content across to people. Discipleship is also about making sure that's affecting their character. It's also affecting their competencies, that is, their skills, which is all being done in the context of the church or community. Content, character, competence, community or four H's, head, heart, hands, home. And that if you'll keep in mind those four C's or four H's, you'll be, much, um, you'll be more well-rounded in discipleship rather than thinking that I'm discipling someone if I'm sitting having coffee and we're studying the Gospel of John together. And I'll try to give you some illustrations of how I've seen this happen, some very exciting things happen as you keep a more well-rounded approach to discipleship. So, part of this is going to be about church strategy also. This is a uh, shooting analogy, so if you don't like guns, please forgive me up front. Uh, But I do like to shoot, and when I go out to the rifle range and I look down the sights of my rifle, I better be aiming small so that when I miss, I miss small. Here's what I mean. If I'm looking at that target and kind of picture in your mind a bullseye, if I just am content to get my sights on the whole target and squeeze the trigger, I might hit the target, 
but I might not, I'm probably not going to hit the bullseye. But if I'm aiming down my sights, and I'm aiming very tightly right for the bullseye, and one thing that I would really like in particular is if I look at the bullseye, and something in that bullseye might have a slightly different color, I'm going to aim for that color, the discoloration in the bullseye, because I'm, that helps me aim even tighter. Aim small, miss small. Now here's the, the reason for this illustration. It seems to me that a lot of churches have lost sight of the mission. And that church, and I felt this way myself as a pastor for many years, that it felt many times like I had become a program director. And that my job was spinning plates. I have to have a youth ministry, and I have to have an Awana ministry, and we have to have a choir, and we have to have this. If we're going to attract people, we have to do this, and we have to do this. And I've got to keep all the programs in a church. Well, is that what Scripture says church is about? Aim small, miss small. So what are we supposed to be aiming for? Let's look at Matthew 28 to answer the question. And you already know what I think the answer is if we're going to Matthew 28, right? So what do we call Matthew, the end of Matthew 28? Great commission, very good. I had it drilled into my head when I was in college, this little statement. Make his last command your first concern. Make his last command your first concern. But I misinterpreted it. The way I heard that was, go tell the world about Jesus. And you might scratch your head and say, what's wrong with that, going and telling the world about Jesus? Well, that's partially true. We are to go tell the world about Jesus. But that's not what this statement says. This statement does not say, go do mass evangelism and hand out tracts to everybody in the world. Go tell the world about Jesus. That's the way I was hearing all the missions emphasis at our, the Bible college that I attended. But what the passage does say is, go make disciples. And if you think about the difference between those two things of go tell the world about Jesus versus go make disciples, you'll start to see how this fits in with this whole presentation that we are called to make disciples. So let's start thinking about what does it mean to make a disciple. Um, one of the things we did as a church there in Virginia was we went through every, we got serious about this, and we went through every program and asked ourselves, is this program making disciples? And if it's not making disciples, what can we do to fine-tune it to make disciples or get rid of the sacred cow? And we had to make some of those decisions of what are we going to get, what programs, because we can't keep spinning all these plates, and we're not a real big church. We were a church of about 200. So how are we going to keep staffing all these programs, especially if we're going to start taking people more seriously than programs? That ministry is to be about people. And I have some key words up here. You ever feel like the programs become the main thing? I used to joke with our Awana leaders, that um, I think we could do the whole Awana thing on Wednesday nights without any children, because it was all about the keeping the schedule. You know, you got handbook time, and the children almost became a frustration. You're getting in the way of the schedule. You know, we got a handbook time, council time, game time, and it, you could run the whole thing without any kids. Um, that's what it... What, programs can become that it becomes more about we've got to keep this ministry running than 
No, this whole ministry was started, and church is about how do we minister to people? How do we help people grow and change? So I have some key words up here, and by the way, your outline is just kind of a general outline. There's going to be a lot of extra stuff up here that's not on the outline. But just to uh, stimulate your thinking about and the way I think about discipleship, get some of these words in your mind. I think of of discipleship as another word that is a synonym for discipleship is mentoring. Another word that you could think of there is apprenticeship. So if some of you have uh, gone through an electrical apprenticeship program or plumbing apprenticeship, think that way. You start off and you work your way up through the, the program and you become certified as your mentored. So think mentoring. Think purposeful. Think strategic. Think about investing in people. Investing more in people than, in, than investing in programs. That we need to be passionate about people, not programs. Programs are about developing people. Programs are not the end, they are the means to the end. Now, a few years ago, a book that's gone across the nation that has been a huge blessing, and I would highly recommend it, and don't you, you, at a conference like this, you just, there's no end to books you're getting recommended, but it's my seminar, so I'm going to tell you, you really need to listen, or you need to re- read this book. The Trellis and the Vine is an excellent book, and a few years ago, it was just going across the nation like a wildfire, and it was uh, wonderful to hear how that book was influencing many people. And here's the idea of the trellis and the vine, that for many churches, church has become about the trellis rather than the vine. And we need to get refocused on that it's not about how pretty is your trellis. In an ideal world, your trellis ought to be all covered up, right? You shouldn't even see the trellis because there's so many roses on the trellis. But for, for many churches, it's about the program. The book, The Trellis in the Vine, is, hey, we've got to get back to vine growth. We put trellises in place to support the people and helping people grow, but if, it's not, if we're not making disciples with this program any longer, the trellis, maybe it's time to get rid of the trellis. Uh, let me give you an example. This one, many people will go, whoa, don't even touch that one. But just think for a moment. You realize Sunday school is not in the Bible. I know that is hard to comprehend, but Sunday school is only about 300 years old. And it was started by a guy named Bobby Rakes in England, truly as Sunday school for children factory workers in, in England. But for many churches, they can't, what do you mean? We can't even be a church if we don't have Sunday school. We have to have Sunday school. Well, my question would be, is your Sunday school, is Sunday school making disciples? Is it really helping people grow and mature? And if Sunday school has just been, and I'm defining that, the way I'm going to be defining making disciples here as head, heart, hands, home, content, character, competence, if it ceased to do that, either we need to get it back on track of how are we really going to be helping people grow and change through Sunday school, or maybe there's a better trellis to use right now. Get rid of the old trellis and bring in something new. I know that sounds sacrilegious for for people to even think about throwing out Sunday school But my question again would be, is it accomplishing the purpose? And the purpose is, make his last command our first concern. And what was his last command? Let's read it. 
Matthew 28, and Jesus came up, verse 18, and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I'm going to focus mainly, obviously, on verse 19. This isn't going to be a full exegesis of these verses, but I just want to point out a little bit about the structure and that the main command there is go make disciples. And then there's two subparts of that. The first is baptizing. The way you fulfill the command is that initial step of I am a follower of Jesus Christ now, and the way you show that publicly, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And now the first phrase of verse 20 is the part that I really want to focus on, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Now, I want to reread it, and you think about, because by rereading it, I think it's going to make something stand out to you, and that's the purpose here. So let me reread part of verse 20. So we're to go make disciples. We'll talk about what a disciple, I'm going to give you some definitions of that in just a moment. What does it mean to be a a disciple? But to make disciples, the Lord said, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Now let me reread it teaching them all that I commanded you. That's not what the Lord said, though, is it? He did not just say, teaching them all that I commanded you. But that's how we read it. We read it as, get content, teach, get stuff across to people. But that's not what he said. He said, teaching them to observe. Teach them how to live out what I've commanded you. Disciple making disciples is much more than just getting material across to people. You all, some of the hardest people I had to deal with, quite frankly, through the years as a pastor, were people that could quote me all kinds of Bible verses. They were some very difficult people, oftentimes very proud. Remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, that knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. Think what the Lord says in Ephesians 4. Speak the truth, but speak the truth in love. Our Lord in John chapter 1 was full of grace and truth. You had character and you had content. So disciple, what I'm trying to argue for is discipleship is much more than just, let's just bombard people with all kinds of information. To make a disciple is to help that person take that content and work it into their life. Teach them how to observe all that I commanded you. So a disciple, here's some definitions. A mathetuo is a disciple. A learner, a follower who adheres to teachings and promotes the cause. Someone who's been instructed or trained. Now, part of our problem here, I think, in the United States is we have a Western model of how education takes place. And we think that by sitting in a class, and you can sit in classes, get straight A's, walk a platform, get a diploma, and we say someone has an education. Um, One of the things I like about 
and I'm prejudiced obviously, is our MABC degree, is because it is, I think, balanced even with this whole model. Let me give you an example. Someone that comes and does our MABC degree in biblical counseling. Ask our MABC students here if there's a lot of content. There is obviously a lot of content. They're studying theology. They get a great how to study the hermeneutics class, how to use Logos Bible software, how to exegete people, lots of content, lots of great reading. But we have them do these things called personal improvement projects where they have to take the material and develop a growth plan so that they're working it into their own soul. You're starting to hear content, character, competence. So they get content. They have to do personal growth projects to do self-counseling. How do I apply this to my life? And there's numbers of those throughout our MABC program. And then you get to the upper level of the MABC, and you have a class called Practicum. It is highly possible for a person to get straight A's in the content and get to Practicum where you have to sit in a room and actually counsel someone. And we've had people that are wonderful academic students, they get with a real person and they have to counsel the person and they kind of sit there and go, no, what do I do to apply this? What What am I supposed to do again? And they're getting straight A's in their classes. Well, it's because they haven't learned how to use it. That's competence. Content, character, competence. What you're hearing me say is that part of this, I think, is we have to break out of a Western education mindset that content equals you've been equipped to do ministry. Just because you know a lot of Bible does not necessarily mean that you're equipped to do ministry. I want to equip the whole person to be able to do ministry, head, heart, and hands, content, character, and competence. I believe that that's what the Lord was doing with the disciples. He was impacting their whole person. It was on-the-job training. A lot of the content was as they were walking around. He's teaching them. He's showing them how to do ministry. They're seeing him do ministry. They're seeing how he interacts with people, and he's challenging their hearts, their inner person regularly. You have the whole model of content, character, and competence. Let's keep moving. So the main command is go make disciples. What are we trying to do? As we, and that's a follower, a learner. What are we trying to do? We're trying to not just teach them all that he commanded. We're teaching them how to observe all that he commanded. How do you live this out? The word observe, I didn't tell you this, but the word observe is a Greek word tereo, and it means to keep, uh, kind of tenaciously hold on to. How do you live these things out in your life? Te- teach them how to live these things out. Teach them how to observe them in their life. Now, if our goal is to make followers of Christ, learners who are dedicated followers of Christ, like Larry, how do we get him from where he is now in his immature state? And it's hard to imagine, but could Larry be an elder 15 years from now or 10 years from now? I think he could. I believe Larry could be, even with all the baggage that he has to deal with, all the progressive sanctification that needs to happen in Larry's life, Larry is a future church leader if someone will mentor him by the grace of God. So what are we aiming for? If we are aiming toward followers of Christ, 
and we know that the goal of progressive sanctification doctrinally is Christ-likeness, we better ask ourselves, what's the end product supposed to look like, right? Does that make sense logically? If we're aiming toward Christ-like maturity, you better know what a mature believer looks like. So I'm posing the question up here, what is a mature believer? And I wish we had time to really interact about this, but what does it mean to be a mature believer? We just kind of intrinsically sense, well, that person seems like they're farther along in their Christian life than that person. How do we tell a person who's a mature follower of Christ? Or how would you know a mature Christian if you saw one? I think it has to do with maturing in head, heart, and hands. That's no surprise, right? Since I'm pretty committed to this model. Wouldn't you expect that a mature Christian has more knowledge? So a mature Christian, or let's even be more accurate because we believe in progressive sanctification. Let's not say mature Christian, because can we ever say that someone is mature like they've totally arrived? I don't think so. If we believe in the doctrine of progressive sanctification, we ought to say maturing. So a more, or this may not be grammatically correct, but how about this one? A more mature, a more mature Christian or a maturing Christian. So a more mature Christian would be someone that is more mature in their content someone that would be more mature in their character, their inner person, because they've taken truth. All that content has been worked into their soul, and they're practicing it uh, in their own soul and trying to live out biblical truth. But they're also more mature in their ministry skills, their competencies. That, and isn't that the Lord? That was our Lord. Our Lord is obviously mature because he has superior Bible knowledge, he has superior character, and he knew how to work with all kinds of people in all kinds of situations, so he has superior ministry skills. So I'm aiming toward Christ-likeness. I want people to be followers of Jesus Christ. He's the goal. We're becoming followers of Christ. He's the goal, Christ-likeness. What is the goal, then? It is superior knowledge, superior character, mature character, maturing character, and maturing ministry skills. So as I work with Larry, the question becomes, okay, here's Larry where he is now. How do I get him to the next level with his knowledge? How do I get him to the next level with his character? How do I let, get him to the next level uh, by the grace of God and the work of the Holy Spirit in his life with his ministry skills? And then after that, how do we help him go to the next level? And then how do we help him go to the next level? And that's mentoring people for ministry. It takes a lot of time, but boy, is it rewarding. The last seven years of our ministry in Virginia, uh, I heard some of this material and just all of this was congealing in my mind and someone else came and presented some material and uh, we just started brainstorming, okay, how are we going to do this in our church? And the last seven years of pastoral ministry there in Virginia were the most fruitful years of pastoral ministry as I tried at all... The, while I was doing counseling and other minute, all my other pastoral responsibilities, I always had to, I tried to have two men that I was working with in a more in-depth way. And boy, was it rewarding to work, pour my life into those two men. And as those men would grow and mature, we'd graduate them, and I'd start working with two more, and they would start working with some guys. And we just had, there was a profound influence uh, on the church, rather than just me preaching every Sunday, 
I take expository preaching seriously, and I would still study hard and do my expository messages, but rather than my pastoral ministry just being about expository preaching, it was also about mentoring people for ministry, and it was incredibly rewarding those last seven years to watch men grow and change. So that leads us to the question, well, before I go to that next main point, the significance or the, what's the role of church leaders and the significance of Ephesians 4, just to draw out some of the implications, we'll take away any, any room for uh, not understanding what I'm trying to get across, I'll say it as clearly as I can, years in the church does not equal maturity. Just because someone has been in the church for 20 years, that doesn't mean they're a mature follower of Christ. I've seen some people that are five years old in the Lord more mature than people that have been in the church 30 years because they've taken their walk with the Lord, applying scripture, getting involved in ministry much more seriously than the person who has come and just sits on Sunday morning and never really gets involved and doesn't really apply truth to their own lives. Amount of Bible content alone does not equal maturity, and doing ministry does not necessarily equal maturity. It is the whole package. You've known people as well as I. I've known many people that have been involved in ministry. I'm thinking of a guy that I was in high school with, and we went to Bible college together, and he was very dedicated to evangelism, even open-door evangelism, things that many people wouldn't do, and a year later he was in jail for breaking the law. So just because somebody is in ministry does not mean that they're more, um, more mature. It's the whole package of content, character, competence. Now, um, I'll skip that one. Just so you can fill in the blanks for all the control freaks here so you don't feel like you're missing some blanks. <clears throat> So the question is, how do we structure a church to be, and I, many people, I've had so many people react against this statement, how do we structure a church to be a disciple-making machine? Now, I like gears, <laughs> and I like organization, so I like things just clicking together that how do we, figuratively speaking, see the person come in the front door of the church we figure out where they are spiritually, get them plugged into the church, work our whole model, content, character, competence, in the context of community, and see them become mature followers of Christ. That's what I mean by how do we structure the church to be a disciple-making machine. If machine just sounds really impersonal to you and you don't like that, you can substitute it for disciple-making team. How do you like that? Disciple-making team. But the point is, getting everything structured in the church so that we're doing what the, his last command was. Make his last command our first concern. Make disciples. So let's get organized in our churches with all of the programs, the trellises, to be producing followers of Jesus Christ. In my mind, that is the same thing as saying, how can a local church be structured to be a worshiper-making machine? When the Lord said, Go make disciples, that is, become followers of me. Well, who's the greatest? Think of Paul, 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Who's the person that lived that out the best? Obviously, the Lord Jesus Christ. So if people are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, 
they're going to be fulfilling what 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of, of God. So it's the same making disciples, as John Piper would say, the Lord's always been, let the nations be glad. The Lord's always been concerned about the nations. The Lord has always wanted the nations to be worshipers of him. So the great commission in Matthew 28 is, how do we help the world know the true and living God? And it's through relationship with Jesus Christ, being restored to relationship with the creator through our wonderful savior, and you're becoming a worshiper. So how do we structure our churches to be a disciple-making machine or worshiper-making machines? That leads to the next question then, what is the job of church leadership? And this passage is so fascinating. Turn with me to Ephesians 4. And there's something significant about this passage that often does not get talked about. Many passages or many pastors would say this is the passage that shapes their ministry. I know John MacArthur would say that at Grace Community Church. So Ephesians 4, 11 and 12, he says this, And he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers. And as you know, many put those together grammatically, pastor-teachers. What's their job? For the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. There's so many things that we could say about this. Like, if we're really going to make disciples in the local church, we have to get rid of what I call the, the hired holy man mentality. That we hire pastors to do all the work of the, the ministry. That it's the clergy's job to do all the ministry. Well, that's not the way the word minister is used, even in the New Testament. Ministers used of every person in the body of Christ. Here's the significant thing that often gets missed with this passage. Do you realize, as common as we use the term pastor in American culture, and it's been strange transition for me to be a master's and to be Dr. Baker now rather than Pastor Baker, because I was Pastor Baker for 25 years, a really strange transition. 20, 25 years I was Pastor Baker. In our culture, we use the term pastor. Do you realize this is the only place in the New Testament that uses this term as the office in the church for pastor. Now, if that's, since that's true, we, and I've been hearing more and more people ask this question in recent years, what's the pastor's job description? What's a pastor supposed to do? Well, shouldn't we go to the passage? I know there's 1 Peter 5 and all the shepherd passages, uh, etc., elder, and how they all tie together. I'm fully aware of that, but this is the only place where the title pastor is used. So doesn't this define a pastor's job description is the point that I'm trying to make. If there's anything in the New Testament that defines what's a pastor to do, well, he's to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. But I have to add something else. Equipping does not just mean teaching Bible. Let me show you. Turn back to Luke chapter 6, and I'm going to tie together Matthew 28 with Ephesians 4. Luke chapter 6, famous discipleship verse. Verse 40. A pupil, that's the word disciple. It's the exact same word, disciple. Is not above his teacher, but everyone after he has been fully trained, that's the exact same word as equipped in Ephesians 4, 
will be like his teacher. So, and we could go to other passages like Galatians chapter 6 says, if you see a brother overtaken in a fault, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness. That's the exact same word as equip in Ephesians 4. Uh, it's used in the Gospels of mending broken fishing nets, of putting it all together. What's a pastor's job? It's not just teaching content. What's the church leadership's job? It's not just content. It's equipping people. It's mending people. It's discipleship. Like Luke chapter 6, verse 40 says, a pupil, a disciple, when he is fully trained. Well, what does it mean to be fully trained? A fully trained person is not just someone with a lot of knowledge. That doesn't make you fully trained to be able to do ministry. If my goal is to equip people for ministry, I have to give them content, I've got to help them work on their character, and I have to help them work on their ministry skills so that they know how to actually use the head knowledge, what they're learning in their heart, their inner person, how to actually live it out with others. So I think what Paul is saying there in Ephesians 4 is he's saying pretty much the same thing. Mentor people. Equip people for the work of ministry. What is the job of church leadership? Now, for those of you that aren't church leaders, that leads to the next point. Because some would like to say, okay, that's why we hired you. We hired the pastor to do the ministry. But Scripture doesn't have that type of model. The New Testament has the model of we're all involved in one another's lives, and we've, just, we've been hearing Tim talk about the significance of community and growth happening in community. So let's talk about the significance of the one another's. And you have some verses there in your notes. Let's, let's look at one of them in particular, the granddaddy of biblical counseling verses, Romans 15, verse 14. This is the verse that the Lord used in J. Adams' life years ago to launch the modern biblical counseling movement. Romans 15, 14. There's something significant about this verse. Concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another. Now think of my model again, okay? Content, character, competence, community. Now I'm going to read through the verse again, and I'd like you to call out which one I'm reading when I emphasize it, okay? This is the significant thing about this verse. Concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness. There's character. Filled with all knowledge... There's content, able, competence, to admonish one another, community. Now, you're not hearing me say, I know better than this with exegesis and expository speaking, to say Paul had content, character, competence, and community in mind when he wrote this verse. I just find it interesting that Paul thought this way about what does it mean to be a mature Christian, to be... He must have thought of the church of Rome as being farther along as a church because he says, I'm convinced that you're full of goodness, filled with knowledge. They were further along in their character. They're further along in their ministry skills. They're further along in their ability 
to admonish or counsel one another, and they were further along in their knowledge. Uh, I just think it's interesting that Paul thought in terms of the whole person, and what does it mean, what does a mature Christian look like, and we have it here in Romans chapter 15. And let me give you some other statistics on the phrase one another, and it would be hard for me to overemphasize how significant this phrase is in the New Testament. Uh, one of the things that we did as a church, because we, we believe that, and it took a while to convince everybody, because a lot of people in our traditional Baptist church for a while thought of church as being what you do on Sunday morning. And boy, did we have to do a lot of hard work as leaders to convince everybody, no, it's about life with one another. And how do we get small group ministry started? And how, do we be, how can we be ministering to one another? And it took some years of hard work to get that whole mentality developed in our church of how do we one another one another. But one of the things we did to convince the body was we did a one another evaluation of our church. So if you want a practical home, homework assignment, there are <clears throat> 67 different relational one another's in the New Testament. The phrase is used over a hundred times, but sometimes it's just they said to one another in the Gospels, conversation. But there are 67 relational one another's. There are 28 different positive one another's and 10 negative one another's, like Galatians 5, don't bite and devour one another. A lot of churches need that one right now, unfortunately. The main one another of the New Testament is love one another. And we could talk for hours about why is that the most often repeated command of the New Testament. I think it has to do with holiness, that the only thing strong enough by the grace of God through the power of the Holy Spirit to beat the flesh is a superior love. So loving God and loving others defeats sin in the body. Defeats sin in your life, defeats sin in the body. So churches, church leaders ought to be working on regularly how do we get this body loving each other more and more because that is what's going to defeat sin in the body. People that love one another are going to want to be holy. That's why Paul says in Romans 13, love fulfills the law. If you love, you will not commit adultery. If you love, you will not steal. So it makes total sense to me why love one another is the most often repeated command in the New Testament. So what's our job in the body? The main command is make disciples. It's not just about content. It's about the whole person. The church leadership is involved because it's about equipping the saints. Equipping is not just getting content across. Equipping is, think of going on a whitewater rafting trip. A few years ago, actually today, about four years ago, I was being helicoptered out of the bottom of the Grand Canyon uh, on this day because I had just finished eight days of rafting the Colorado River. And I did that trip with a group called Answers in Genesis. And believe me, when we, before we got on those rafts, they equipped us. They did not just give us material or give us equipment, they showed us how to use the equipment, they gave us safety instructions, we practiced some things, they, if you fall into the river, here's what we're going to do to get you out of the river, 
Equipping, the point is equipping or being outfitted, as Paul would use the term in 2 Timothy 3, is not just getting more information to people. It's showing people how to use the equipment, mentoring people for ministry. So the main command is make disciples. Church leaders are involved in this equipping, and we're all involved in one another's lives. Let's take it the next step. We've already looked at that, Romans 15, 14. It's all happening in the context of the local church. Now let's go to the next point in the outline. And let me remind you that the Lord is interested in the whole person, not just brains. We are called, you have in your notes, Mark 12, 30. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, inner person and outer person. The Lord is interested in the whole person. So a basic premise of this discipleship model that I'm trying to present to you is that people are designed to learn better as a whole unit. In fact, I believe people are designed by God to learn by doing. Let me give you a couple of illustrations of that. Um, If you're trying to learn a new skill on the computer, now if you're me, I'm lazy and I just ask my kids to do it for me because they seem they're so technologically savvy, they, they can just do it. But I've had people who are really tuned into training others say to me, here's how you do it, now let me see you do it. And they make me do it, and I hate that, that they make me do it on the computer. We were learning this whole new thing for our school as a uh, learning program called Joule, which is kind of our, I don't even know what their learning management system for the school. And we had all these training sessions, and they actually made me have to learn how to use Joule. I didn't want to do that. I wanted the administrative assistants to do that. I didn't want to do that. But they made me sit down and learn how to use Joule. So they taught us how to do it. And then they said, now type this on your computer. And now let me come see how you're doing. And seeing if I was doing the right thing, I learned how to use Joule. Here's another illustration that's pertinent. Uh, Think of traffic. And I'm tuned into this because of Los Angeles. And we just had a ninth... Eight miles from my house, we had a 19-car pileup. Maybe you heard about that. Uh, that happened just about eight miles from our house at a place co- near Vasquez Rocks. Uh, I've talked about Vasquez Rocks twice now. You're going to want to go north and try to find Vasquez Rocks. It's a great place to visit, very interesting place to visit. Uh, who's going to be better equipped to drive in Los Angeles traffic? Is it going to be, let's talk about two teens, teen one, teen two. A teen who's been through, let's say, two driver education classes, aced all the content, maybe got 100% on the exams, or teen two that sat through a great driver education class, missed a few questions on the exam, but has really good behind-the-wheel training. Which teen is going to be better equipped to handle L.A. traffic, teen one or teen two? It's obviously teen two, but we often think that we're equipping people in the church by just getting content out to them. People learn by doing. One of the things that I tried to do as a pastor, I developed this mentality of don't do anything alone. And it took extra work for me for a while as a pastor, but if I was going on a hospital visit, I'm calling one of my church leaders and saying, hey, I'm going to the hospital. Can you come with me? And sometimes it took two or three calls before I could get one of the guys to go with me. But boy, was it worth it in the long run. And on the way to the hospital, we're talking about How are we going to do this hospital visit? 
And then he's watching me do the hospital visit. And when I do hospital visits, I'm not just reading Scripture and praying with the person. I'm asking them about their worries and fears, and I'm turning it into a counseling session as I'm standing there at the hospital bed. And then on the way home after the hospital visit, we're debriefing and talking about what did you see? What questions did you have? What do you think I could have done better? We just turned it into equipping the saints for the work of the ministry rather than I had a class and I taught you how to do hospital visits and gave you content. I accomplished all that in the car and got them the same content, but it was on-the-job training. The Lord is interested in the whole person. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I believe people are designed to learn by doing. You have in your notes then head, and you have a blank. You can fill in there beside head, and you ought to know it by now. Content. Scripture emphasizes content, like 2 Peter 3.18. But grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The next one, the Lord is interested in the heart. What's the C that goes with that? Character. Very good. So the Lord's interested in the whole person, your head, your heart, and you just sat through a whole bunch of sessions with Tim, and you've probably heard a lot of this with others in biblical counseling, so I'm not going to go a lot into what the heart is, but I want to work with where is this person like Larry? What's he living for, and what's he serving? And if you read through this story, it's really easy to start seeing the types of thing that, things that Larry's serving, Right? I need people to approve, me, approve of me. So if I'm going to make a disciple, a more mature follower of Christ with Larry, it's not just, okay, Larry, let's study the Gospel of John together. That's going to help him some, obviously, because Scripture's powerful. But I think it's really going to help Larry to start talking about, Larry, why, do you, or why are you so needy for the approval of people? And Larry, why is it so hard for you to get a job and keep a job? I'm going to be helping him mature as a follower of Christ by helping him wrestle through those issues in his inner person. And he's going to be more quickly uh, able to do ministry with others. So the Lord's interested in the heart. And Hebrews 4.12 talks about the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And you know many other verses about the heart, like Proverbs 4.23. I'm going to skip over this. What's the C that goes along with hands? What is it again? Competence. Very good. So I asked some questions there. What skills does he or she need to learn to function in the body of Christ? Where do they fit in the body? What are his or her spiritual gifts? How can I model this for them? Let me give you another illustration. Uh, This evening I'm doing a workshop on the strategic importance of family worship. Having a family devotional time has been very important to us through the years with our Uh, family. And you'll hear more about that tonight if you choose to come to that session. But I've turned it into a a mentoring time for many men. Instead of just having a time to tell them, you need to be leading your family in family worship. Well, in my weekly discipleship time, I am telling them that. And I teach them the material. But then I say, next week you're coming to my house and you're bringing your family. And they bring their family and we all eat dinner together. And then he watches me lead my family in family worship. And then we 
the next week in our discipleship meeting, we talk about what did you see? What can, questions can I answer? Then I said, guess what? We've talked about this enough. And we've talked about the importance of you doing it enough. Next week, we're going to lead together. And so next week, they bring their family again. And he, I lead family worship. He's heard me talk a lot about family worship. But then he leads a section of the family worship with our two families together. Then we talk about it again in our discipleship meeting, that weekly time when we're getting together or every other week time. And then I say, guess what? Next week you're on and you're going to lead and I'm going to watch and then we're going to talk about what you could do to improve that worship time. I tried to also, as a pastor, develop this type of thinking. I do it and you watch me. We do it together, and then you do it. And that just became the way, one way of slowly getting people equipped with new ministry skills. So things like what skills do they need to minister effectively? That's the hands. How do you incorporate that into their mentoring and developing the mentality of don't do ministry alone? And it's all in the context of the local church. The local church, I like to think of as God's incubator for growth. It is, I believe the local church is the hottest thing on the planet. It's God's incredible design to help people grow and change. And a lot of churches just really don't get how powerful the tool is that the Lord has given us in the local church. Now, I want to, we have just a few minutes left, and I like this phrase too. Instead of all of ministry being bottled up in me as the pastor, and I I just had to keep preaching this at the church, um, that don't think you have to keep coming to me. If you think you have to come to me for ministry, ministry is getting bottled up. It's, It's like a bottleneck. It's all stopped and getting stopped up with me. But let's think about how do we unleash the potential of the church, that all of these folks in the body all have spiritual gifts, and how do we mentor them and equip them, equip the saints to do the work of the ministry? I think it's a pretty exciting vision. Now, let's get to a little bit about nuts and bolts. And this will be the last passage we're going to turn to. And if you want to talk about more practical examples, come talk to me afterward. And I'd love to talk to you about it. In fact, I've talked your ear off for hours if you want about this. But one of the things that we've done at our church is we've kind of developed, not kind of, we have developed, and this is the church where I'm serving as a leader now, different levels of learning or learning objectives for different levels of growth spiritually. And we try to figure out where this person is that we are mentoring or discipling, and we have a list of learning outcomes for the head, for the heart, and for the hands for whether this person is a new believer, a growing believer, or a teaching leader are our three categories. So let me see if I can demonstrate it for you. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 12, John writes, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his namesake. And then 13, I'm writing to you, fathers, so more mature, because you know him who has been from the beginning. And then I'm writing to you, young men. We took this as a model, a way of thinking of different levels of spiritual maturity. Children new believers, young men, growing believers, fathers, we call teaching leaders. And then for each one of those areas, for a young man or a new believer, 
We have learning objectives for the head. We have learning objectives for the heart. And we have learning objectives for the hands. For the growing believer, we've developed learning objectives for the head. What should they know? What should a growing believer be able to do? What should a growing believer be applying to their inner person? And then where should a elder, a teaching leader, be in the church? Or an older godly woman, where should she be in the church in her knowledge and in her inner person and in her hands-on skill? And we've skills, and we've developed learning objectives, lists for each one of these areas. Let me see if I can illustrate this for you in conclusion. Wouldn't you say that a new believer ought to be able to give a testimony? I mean, that's a new believer type of thing. But I know people that have been in the church for years, and they can't even tell what happened to me when I got saved. They don't even know how to share their testimony. That ought to be a new believer type of thing. Shouldn't a new believer be asked, if you're discipling them, you need to memorize the order of the books of the Bible so you're not fumbling around during the sermon. But now that's almost becoming obsolete with, with iPhones and everything else that everybody's carrying. But I still think it's a good learning objective. In the heart, helping them understand their heart. What's, what really motivates you? What are you living for? And then where can I serve in the body? Rather than I just come and take on Sunday mornings, or I just come and take from this body, what can I do to start serving? And we have a lot more things for new believers. What about a growing believer, young men? Shouldn't a growing believer start to understand things like suffering and sovereignty? They ought to be able to know how to study the Bible rather than I rely on the pastor to do all my feeding of me. I'm learning how to feed myself. A deeper understanding of progressive sanctification. They're starting to understand spiritual gifts. Uh, starting to study elder qualifications, and then what is my spiritual gift and how do I use it in the local church? Then for a teaching leader, the fathers, they ought to be further along in their theology. Uh, we're having all of our elders in our church read, a, read Grudem's systematic theology. They ought to know if they're going to be a shepherd of others. They ought to know how to do biblical counseling. They ought to know how to teach and how to lead a small group. Well, a new believer isn't going to be able to do that but a teaching leader ought to be able to do that. And I guess what I would say in conclusion here is, are we just going to think that this is just going to happen? Or are we just going to depend on people to just do it on their own? Or are we going to want another one another and come alongside of each other and progressively, proactively help people, mentor them, or what I would say is what's meant by Ephesians 4, equip the saints for the work of the ministry. If you have any questions about this, I love talking about this. Larry, by the way, this was written uh, about six months ago, and he, uh, I'd have to, if I was rewriting this, Larry looks totally different, or a lot different than this right now than when I wrote this six months ago. So progressive sanctification happens. The Lord matures people, and he uses others to help them grow and change. Let me close in prayer for us. Father, thank you for all the, uh, the wonderful folks that are represented here that care about people and want to come alongside of them and help others grow and change. Help us, Lord, to think strategically, to think in terms of equipping and what that means, and to be wise as we uh, help people to observe all that you commanded us. Lord, 
unleash the potential of all the churches that are represented here for your glory. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Copyright 2012, IBCD, All Rights Reserved. More free resources are available at www.ibcd.org.